Whenever you start a gospel, you always know where it's leading, right? You know it's leading to the cross, to the grave, and ultimately to the resurrection. And so this morning we come to that. We left off last week with the body, the body of our Lord. What a mystery that is, that we can speak of the body of our Lord laid in the tomb before sundown on Friday. And we saw last week how with the eyes of faith, we see already in the burial of Jesus the promise of his resurrection. And this morning then we come to the empty tomb and the accomplished historical fact of the resurrection of our Lord. Now, we're going to do something a little different today. You have a longer handout today uh, because I pretty much gave you most of what I have. Um, because I either was going to give you all or nothing. Um, I couldn't give you part because it, it, it sticks with everything else. Um, so you can either read a lot or you can just listen and take that handout home as a resource for later. Um, but uh, nowhere probably in the Bible are there more apparent contradictions than there are in the gospel accounts of the resurrection. Now, you know, we got four Gospels, and all four of them tell about the resurrection, and all four of them tell about it differently, and there appears to be contradictions. There are, of course, many who, appear, who appeal to those contradictions to discredit the Bible, and therefore, apparently, as a result, to also discredit the resurrection itself as a historical event. And I just want, I mean, obviously this matters to us because, um, you know, sometimes we have this idea that the Bible is kind of not quite like history, like other history things, right? Uh, Other historical sources, other historical records. But we, of course, as Christians, confess that the scriptures record real history and, in fact, that the resurrection of this body from out of that actual physical grave actually happened for real. Um, And so this is important, and this is not only important for the sake of the inerrancy of scripture, uh, but for the sake of our faith. As we'll see, in fact, the apparent contradictions Uh, only demonstrate all the more, in your handout, the sheer, and I'm so excited about this word. This is a word I've never used, but it's a word that needed to be used right now. And it is the sheer facticity. That's a word of the resurrection. Facticity means the quality or condition of being a fact. Brothers and sisters, in other words, and this is on the handout, on the, on the screen now, it is precisely the resurrection of Jesus as a verifiable historical fact that allows and even gives rise to the four very different perspectives from which that historical event is recounted. I just want to point out, even if there were contradictions in these accounts, that would not delegitimize their witness 
Um, we don't argue that way with any other account. Just because some other historical sources disagree with each other at points about an event, we don't then discount the event entirely. It's, it's amazing how people treat the Bible differently and hold it to some other standard than we do any other source. Well, I, don't, I do too. It's inspired and inerrant. But that's in a different way. Let me put it this way. Apart from the real historical fact of the resurrection, if, you don't have the, if that did not happen, the gospel narratives, as they stand, especially with their apparent contradictions, can never be accounted for. So it's actually their apparent contradictions that prove to us, as it were, that the resurrection must have happened historically. And yet, as it happens, we know the, the contradictions are, are, they are apparent. They're never real. And I'm just going to run through briefly some basic things we're going to see this morning and next week. Sometimes the tensions, they're resolved when we recognize the presence of literary techniques. And I, this, this should matter to you at one level because when you're reading the Gospels, there are some things that look like flat-out, blatant contradictions. Now, one, some of the ways to recognize that it's not actually the case, one is with historical compression. So, two events, actually separated by a, a lot of time, are recounted as immediately following one upon the other, even though they didn't. And even though the author, if you look closely, never says they did. We'll see an example of that this morning. A first century author, in fact, we'll see this next week, he might recount a historical detail completely out of order. So he might take something that happened here and then put it here, and he actually embeds it in the story, in the text, so that if we didn't know better, we would definitely think that it happened after that. But in fact, it didn't. And while he doesn't explicitly say the events happened in that order, we would naturally assume they did, but that's okay because in this case, the historical order of the events is not the evangelist's point. See, when we write history books, we want the dates, we want the times, we want the order. But, but when they're writing their history, that's not, they're not concerned with the things that modern historians are in the same way. They're not being less accurate. But they have other agendas. So they'll take an event, they'll move it over here. They won't actually say it happened there, but they'll embed it in the text there. We're going to see a a wonderful example of that next week. First century authors were recording real historical events, but they weren't seeking to be comprehensive. So, you've got one gospel, and he tells you that there were two angels. Another gospel says there was one. He doesn't say there wasn't two, but he says there was one. Whereas one gospel says there was one woman, another one says there were two, another one says there were three, and another one says there were probably more than three. So those, let me just say this. Now this is our little intro, okay? And why does this matter? Because brothers and sisters, as it happens, it is a fact this thing that we have built our faith upon. Those who automatically assume contradictions 
in the gospel accounts of the resurrection are usually not only arrogant, and I say that not to be mean, not to score a point. I'm just saying that it is arrogance in the sense that we are requiring first century authors to work under the same literary conventions that we use. Like, this is how we do things, so therefore you had to do things this way too. And if you don't, well then obviously contradictions. That's arrogance. It's, we could call it, it's a different version of chronological snobbery. Um, but not only that, not only is it arrogance, but it stems and is driven by the pre-commitment of unbelief. Now, I'm not ashamed to say today that I will start with the pre-commitment of belief. In the end, we may not know exactly how all the tensions are resolved, but I kind of think we do, but maybe not for sure. But there are certainly reasonable guesses we can make. So this week and next week, what we're going to do is we're going to put together a likely harmony of the Gospels. Uh, Not the whole Gospels, the resurrection account. And so what I'm excited about is that as we do this, we're going to be going back to the historical sources and saying, what happened? Right? And as we do that, we're going to see how the facticity of the resurrection is marvelous, is established beyond all reasonable shadow of a doubt. This is part of John's own agenda here in chapter 20. So I'm not going off on my own agenda here. As a matter of fact, when John writes his account of the resurrection, his point is, I want you to know this is a fact that actually happened because here's the evidence. Now, here's the question then in your handout. Why, after all, do we believe in the resurrection? That's kind of not a rhetorical question. And the answer is not necessarily just one one thing. But I want to ask you again. I want to ask each one of you, why do you believe in the resurrection? We left off Friday then, the day of preparation for the Sabbath. We pick up this morning on the day after the Sabbath. The first day of the week. John chapter 20, verse 1. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene, or Mary of Magdala. Uh, So that Magdalene is a reference to the city from which she comes. She came early to the tomb while it was still dark and saw the stone taken away from the tomb. I want to get to the nitty gritty of this. I don't want to be, uh, uh, this is a glorious account, isn't it? But I also don't want to just do the sentimental thing. I want to get down to saying historically, factually, what happened? Because this is a record of what happened. Now Luke says, on the first day of the week, at early dawn. Mark says, very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen. John tells us that Mary came early to the tomb while it was still dark. 
Now, for the person with the pre-commitment of unbelief, they immediately begin to rejoice and celebrate. Because here's a contradiction. It was dark, John says, when they came to the tomb. It was the sun had risen when they came to the tomb, says Mark. Well, when John says it was dark, there's two things. If I come with the pre-commitment of belief, what do I see? This doesn't necessarily mean Mary arrived at the tomb while it was still dark. It could easily mean she was on her way to the tomb while it was still dark. And by the way, dark doesn't have to mean pitch dark, like the dark of midnight when there's no moon or stars out. Dark can mean before the sun has actually risen in that, in that twilight period just before sunrise. It's not light until the sun has risen, as it were. Apparently, then, we can put it together like this as the historians that we're seeking to be. Mary set out from her home just before the sun had risen. By the time she arrives at the tomb, the sun has risen. Now, that's my first assumption is like, if I want to figure out how this works, I I do it that makes sense. But then when you go to Matthew, Matthew captures this very idea when he says it this way. As it began to dawn toward the first day of the week. She leaves soon before sunrise, which would at that time of the year been about 6.30 in the morning. She arrives shortly after the sun has risen. And the variation, brothers and sisters, in these gospel accounts shows you that they're not just parroting a story. They don't just have some fixed little myth that they're telling. No, they're all dealing with evidence. And they're all recounting the same event in slightly different ways. Because that's the way history is told by different people. And so the, the variation actually testifies to the truthfulness of both historical accounts. Now, here's a question for you. Okay, we're still wondering, like, well, are you sure John didn't get that wrong? Like, I mean, all three of the other Gospels emphasize the sunrise and the dawn, and John throws in it was dark. Why does he, why does he pick that to emphasize? Well, here's another thing about gospel writers. They're not just writing history books. They're writing theology. So that that word for darkness, you you know how many times it's in Matthew? Two times. In Mark, in in Luke, it's once. So that's three total. In Mark, it's never found at all. So three times in the other three gospels. In John, this is now the eighth time that he's used this word. And so... When you read about darkness in John, it's like a John word. Darkness is a John word. And he uses it almost always metaphorically to talk about spiritual darkness. The darkness uh, of different kinds, but a spiritual darkness. Another word that John uses is night. And he uses night for a spiritual darkness. The same thing. And so at times... It appears John draws attention to the literal night, like, okay, night and darkness are like spiritual stuff. Well, then, 
if it's actually literally nighttime, John will draw special attention to the fact that it's night because that, put, that clicks something in our minds. He wants to emphasize the spiritual night. So Nicodemus, John always emphasizes, came to Jesus by night, revealing the darkness in which Nicodemus was still living. When Judas went out to betray Jesus, John is the only one who emphasizes, and it was night. So John has this, he is the, night and darkness are John words. So it seems that when John emphasizes the darkness, which any of the other gospel writers could have, but they like to emphasize the sun is risen. She left before the sun had risen, when it was still dark. She arrived when it was light. The other Gospels talk about the sun rising, but John says, I'm going to go with the darkness. Right? Probably as a subtle way of drawing our attention to the darkness that had settled in Mary's mind and heart. The darkness that the sunrise was about to dispel. Again, we're speaking literally and metaphorically, right? Both John and Mark are historically accurate, but but they choose different details, different aspects of the historical fact and record to make different theological, in your handout, points. We know from the other Gospels, so there we've dealt with the contradiction of dark or light. What was it? We see how Matthew brings it together. And we see why John chose darkness. We know from the other Gospels that Mary Magdalene was not alone. If you just read John, you think, well, it's just Mary, just Mary Magdalene. But no, there's other women with her. Matthew tells us that Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to look at the grave. Mark tells us that Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James, and Salome came to the tomb. And Luke speaks of the women. Later on, it appears that he's referring to more than three. It seems that there were at least four who were with Mary going to the tomb. And we're going to see in a moment that John knows about those other women. He's not unaware of them. But he's telling us about events connected only with Mary Magdalene. And so, for the sake of simplicity and for clarity, writing his gospel, he mentions only Mary Magdalene. So here's another thing to remember. The first century historian selectively includes only the information from the historical record that's necessary to the part of the story he's telling. Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came early to the tomb while it was still dark and saw the stone taken away from the tomb. So she ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved and said to them, They have taken away the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. Notice Mary's we. And we do not know where they have laid him. Why does John name Simon Peter? Look what he says. She came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple. 
We know why that is, right? Because John is the other disciple. And he desires only to be known. He only wants to be known as the disciple Jesus loved. Despite his imperfections, despite his sin, Jesus loved him. That's the only way he wants to be known. And so, brothers and sisters, it's this John who was in your handout, who was there that morning. You got up this morning, you just, you just, you just experienced another morning, another sunrise, maybe. maybe. It's a, it was a morning just like this, with another sunrise, just like we had this morning. John was there, and he is recounting these events for us. Because without the historical record, brothers and sisters, do we have any faith? Can we have any faith without the historical record that this happened on that morning, on that day? No, we cannot. When Mary saw that the stone was taken away, she immediately assumed, she saw the stone gone, she said, Someone's been here and stolen away the body of Jesus. It was the final indignity. And no doubt all the women jumped to the same conclusion. Why, why wouldn't they? What does that mean? They obviously were not, If they think that the enemies of Jesus stole the body away, they obviously weren't aware that the enemies of Jesus had set a guard on the tomb to make sure no one else stole the body of Jesus away. To make sure the disciples didn't. So while the, while the guard, while the Jews are afraid that Jesus' friends are going to come and take his body away, the friends come to the tomb and are afraid the guard, or the, the Jews, took his body away. The women weren't aware of the guard. No one had been to the tomb because what was the day before? It was the Sabbath. You weren't leaving your house. You were at home. So... If they had been aware of the guard, they never would have come to the tomb in the first place with the purpose as only Mark and Luke tell us, only Mark and Luke tell us, they came to anoint the body of Jesus. Now Matthew's account of what happened at this point is an example of compression. So let's let's look at Matthew 28. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, do not be afraid. Now, what does that make it sound to you like? Well, when the women, were, the women witnessed the earthquake, they saw the guards on the ground and they saw the angel sitting on the stone outside the tomb. Uh, when in fact, none of that is the case. Maybe they were aware of the earthquake. I don't know if that was just a local thing right there or what that was. But we know from the other Gospels, when the women arrived at the tomb, the guard had already left the tomb. The angel was no longer sitting on the stone. Now, do you see that to be a contradiction with those facts? In fact, Matthew does not contradict these facts. He, he, he does, I suppose, if you require that he abide by today's modern conventions. 
and history writing. But Matthew uses compression. He compresses these things so that his account of the angel's words to the women follows immediately upon his account of the angel rolling back the stone and sitting on it and the guards becoming like dead men. But Matthew never says that the angel sitting on the rock while the guards were laying there on the ground said to the women, do not be afraid. He historically compresses. This is is a known technique of ancient history writers. So when people so quickly jump to to contradictions, this is arrogance. To the contrary, not only does this difference not, uh, not evidence of a contradiction, it testifies even more powerfully to the resurrection as a historically verifiable fact. Because it's the fact that explains the differences. You see that? It's the fact that explains the differences. And how does Matthew know what happened at the tomb? Um, Now, that's kind of rhetorical, but kind of not again. How do you think Matthew knows what happened at the tomb before the women arrived there? Now, you could say, well, God told him, or an angel came and told him, and that's certainly possible, but not usually the way this kind of stuff works in the case of the Gospel writers. How does Matthew know what happened at the tomb? Well, were there eyewitnesses there? Yeah, there was the guard. And should we be surprised if one or more of the guard joined the early Christian community after what they witnessed at the tomb? Now, John is telling the story of Mary Magdalene. He's not telling the story of the other women who were with her. So while Mary immediately runs away to get help, we know from the other Gospels that the rest of the women stayed at the tomb. You can see it in your mind's eye. You can see this whole thing unfolding. Right? None of the other Gospels tell us that Mary Magdalene left. So if you read Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they, none of them tell you, well, one of the women left at this point. Mary Magdalene went, went back. Because that's irrelevant to their account. And would have only been a distraction. If they had included that, it would have just been a distraction. So what they do tell us is what John does not tell us. The rest of the women entered the tomb and found it empty. But while they were perplexed about this, and probably because of how they found the linen wrappings and the headcloth, we'll see that in a moment, behold, two men suddenly stood near them in dazzling clothing. Historical fact. Because it's a historical fact, it can be recounted from a different perspective. Mark says they saw a young man sitting on the right side wearing a white robe. Okay, is this a contradiction or is this more evidence of the genuineness in your handout? of these independent historical accounts. Well, we don't know what actually how this unfolded, but I would suggest something like this. The angels, when they appeared to the women, were initially sitting. Historical fact. 
Like they will be later. When Mary Magdalene comes back to the tomb and the angels appear to her, they're going to be sitting, one on either side of where the body of Jesus was. After they appear to her sitting, they then stand up together, while one of them addressed the women. That would be the angel, or the young man, mentioned in Mark, who appeared sitting, then stood and spoke. Am I, am I, am I, am I, you know... What an unbeliever is going to say is, obviously you are pre-committed to belief because you're really working hard to make this work. And what I would say to that is, if it's a historical event, nothing could be more natural. In fact, it is the historical event that explains the differences. Because if there was no historical event, and this was all just an invention, What do people work to do who are inventing a lie? They work to smooth out all apparent contradictions. They work to make it appear like this is is all just one um, homogeneous story. But when it's actually a historical event, people aren't worried about that. When it really happened, they know it happened, and so they just tell you how it happened. There was a man sitting there. Oh, there was two men standing. Matthew tells us that the angel said to the women, now here, listen very carefully to this. Now this is going to be our biggest contradiction yet. Matthew tells us the angel said to the women, do not be afraid, go quickly and tell the disciples that Jesus has risen from the dead. Remember what the angel tells them, do not be afraid, go quickly and tell the disciples Jesus has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Then the women left the tomb quickly with fear and great joy and ran to report it to the disciples. Luke actually tells us that they did. They didn't just ran to go do it. They did it. But what does Mark say? They went out and fled from the tomb For trembling and astonishment were gripping them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. And that is possibly where Mark ended his gospel, I think for theological reasons. Now you see the contradiction, right? The apparent one. And how would you suggest, as good historians, that this tension is to be resolved. You know, sometimes, you know, for a long time people said that Nebuchadnezzar's, uh, there was no record of Nebuchadnezzar's um, grandson or son, I can't remember. And so he couldn't have existed because he's only in the Bible. Well, then they found evidence outside of the Bible that he did exist, and so suddenly the Bible was right. Because you can't trust the Bible as a historical source. This is what people tell us. Because it has a theological agenda. It does have a theological agenda. But it's also a historical source. So, what happens here, what we're about to see, is I'm going to make a suggestion about how this could be resolved. And then we're going to find that, oh, 
When we read carefully in Matthew, it supports this suggestion. I believe that what Mark is telling us is that the women were initially unable to say anything to anyone because they were so terrified. Because fear at this angelic visitation had effectively tied their tongues, even in the midst of their joy. Now, notice Mark, Mark if we were to use like our kind of language, you could almost say he goes overboard. He says nothing about joy. What did we read in Matthew? They were filled with fear and joy. Mark leaves out the joy. And he just says, he just says, they fled, they were trembling, they were astonished, their trembling and astonishment were gripping them. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. Paints a pretty graphic picture. And why does Mark do all that? Because Mark hasn't, he wants to emphasize That when God intervenes in human affairs and history, the human response is a terror that unmans us. It doesn't even mean if it's good news. It doesn't matter if it's good news. If the good news is that Jesus is risen from the dead, you are still terrified. And these women are so terrified, they can't even speak. They can't talk. They can't go and tell anyone what they just seen, what happened. This explains, in your handout, this explains why in Matthew we are told that Jesus himself met the women. Only Matthew tells us that Jesus met the women. At some later point, probably after they already arrived back home from the tomb. And what did Jesus do when he met them? He repeated to the women, essentially verbatim, what the angel had already told them. And I've always kind of thought that was interesting. I was so excited this week because I always, whenever I read Matthew, I saw what the angels told the women, and then I saw what Jesus told the women. I thought, why did he need to tell them the same exact thing the the angels just told him? Now we know why. We, we get the picture from, from Mark. And really, I should have known it from Matthew. Because what does Jesus say? Do not be afraid. What's the point? They're still terrified. They're not following the instructions of the angels because they're so, they're so undone. So what does Jesus say? Jesus met them and said greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Historical fact. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Same thing the angel said. Go and report to my brothers to leave for Galilee. Same instruction the angel gave them. And there they will see me. The same promise the angel gave. So when Mark says that they went away and said nothing to anyone, and he doesn't tell you that actually they did after Jesus appeared to them, that's all right. That's all right. He doesn't have to tell us what happened later, what happened after Jesus met them. Mark's point is to emphasize what happens when we are confronted with the intervention of God in actual real history as happened on that morning at the empty tomb. Now when Jesus says, 
I will appear to them in Galilee. They will see me in Galilee. He is not denying he's about to come to the disciples on that very day. Matthew is the only one who recounts those specific words of the angel and of Jesus. And why does Matthew the only one who recounts that? Because Matthew is also the only one who tells us how Jesus met with the disciples in Galilee when he gave them the commission to make disciples of all the nations. So Matthew includes both parts because they go together. And why does Matthew do that? Because Matthew builds his gospel around a certain order. Galilee, Judea, Galilee. That's why Matthew includes those historical details. And so once again, in your handout, far from causing doubt, the differences in the gospel accounts bear further witness to their historical reliability. I just want to tell you, if I saw gospel accounts that, that had no differences, that told everything in precisely and exactly the same way, that might almost imply that it didn't actually happen historically. Because real history is not like that. So now let's go back to Mary Magdalene. We know she wasn't there when the angel appeared to the other women. She won't be there when Jesus appears to the other women. When she saw the stone taken away, she ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved and said to them, They have taken away the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter and the other disciple went forth, and they were going to the tomb. Now the two were running together. And the other disciple ran ahead faster than Peter and came to the tomb first. We might ask ourselves, did Peter and John meet the women as they were coming back from the tomb? If they did, the women would have been speechless with fear and trembling. More likely, the women had already reached home by the time Mary had come to both Peter and John. She had to find them, we believe, based on the Greek, in separate places. They weren't in the same house. She found Peter. Then she went and found John, told him what happened. And by the time they set out for the tomb, the other women have already returned from the tomb. Where is Mary while Peter and John are running to the tomb? Where do you think Mary is? What is Mary doing while Peter and John, after hearing her news, run to the tomb? Well, maybe Mary is resting, getting her breath before she sets out again. In any case, even if she set out right away, she's probably not as fast a runner as Peter and John. She's probably slowed down by women's clothes. And obviously, you can't run back to the tomb as fast as you just came from the tomb. John doesn't give us any of the details, but in a moment, he will simply reintroduce Mary as being present again at the tomb. I I, want to just stop and again mention, there are many people 
who come to that place where all of a sudden, John's just like, oh, and Mary's there, by the way. He doesn't say it that way, but that's the way it, it, it comes across. And so they look at that and say, well, this is an idea. This is a place where John is using different sources. One source said that Mary wasn't there at the tomb because she had already gone back. Another source said, oh, there she is at the tomb. And, and you, can see, you can see how irrational the, our unbelief, the irrationality that unbelief drives people to. Because there's no reason to assume that Mary did not come back with them. Why is Mary there? Because she came back. And the details then that John does give us, he doesn't tell us that Mary was tired or that she was going slower. Uh, all of a sudden she's there. But the details he does give us are vivid. So Peter and the other disciple went forth. We see them leaving the house. They were going to the tomb. We see them on the way. Now the two were running together. The other disciple ran ahead faster than Peter and came to the tomb first. And stooping and looking in, he saw the linen wrappings lying there, but he did not go in. John paints this scene so simply. He's not being overdramatic, and yet he paints it so vividly that I feel like I'm there with him. I think we can feel like we're there with him. We see John. Look, look, brothers and sisters, do you see him? In, in your mind's eye, do you see John stooping, looking into the tomb? And then we see what he tells us that he saw. What do we see, brothers and sisters? We see the linen wrappings lying there. Now, we don't know exactly how the tomb was set up, but one likely option is there was a recessed burial bench in the wall. Whatever the case, it would have been a bench on which the body was laid out. Usually the body was laid, uh, you can go back to that other one. It's really the, usually the body was laid there for a year. Decomposition takes place. And then after a year, the bones will be placed in one of the burial vaults underneath. So we can go to the next picture, which is an actual tomb that this tomb could have looked like. There's something like what could have been where the body of Jesus was laid. This is something like what, what, the, what, what John is now seeing as he peers in from outside. John saw the linen wrappings lying there on the bench where the body of Jesus had been laid. But now the body of Jesus is no longer in the wrappings. Only the grave clothes remain. But if the body of Jesus has been stolen away by enemies, now you, being the detectives, this is what John is being at this point. If the body of Jesus has been stolen away by enemies, as Mary Magdalene told you, and as seemed natural enough, or even if his body was removed by friends, the grave clothes 
would not have been left behind. Friends would not have left the grave clothes behind because they wouldn't have unwrapped his body. Enemies would not have done that either. Even if they had, the grave clothes would have been torn or cut or unwound and cast aside. But there are the grave clothes. Historical fact. But what did John see then? As he looked in from outside, he saw, he saw the linen wrappings lying there where they should be. And that was all he saw. For whatever reason, probably a combination of fear and wonder and confusion, try to put yourself in the state of mind of John at that moment. He tells us that he stayed outside the tomb waiting for Peter to catch up. And so Simon Peter came also following him and entered the tomb. And he saw the linen wrappings lying there and the face cloth which had been on his head, not lying with the linen wrappings, but folded up in a place by itself. You can imagine John, Peter runs up and John tells Peter what he's, what he's seen, still standing outside. Luke actually tells us that Peter also stooped and looked into the tomb. And then he went in while John holds back. And what did Peter see? What did Peter see? He saw not just the linen wrappings lying there where the body was, but the face cloth not lying with the linen wrappings, but folded up or perhaps rolled up and set aside in a place by itself. Here again, what do we have? This is the unadorned, undramatized, unexaggerated, even understated. I mean, I'm thinking, if I was there, I mean, you could really play this one up. John's not playing anything up. He's simply describing what happened, what they saw. Here are the recollections of an eyewitness. Of someone who was there. Obviously, someone has been in the tomb. And no enemy of Jesus. Who then? Who then? Well, I'll ask you then, what would you have concluded if you were Peter or John? Let's put it together. The body of Jesus is not there. That's just a simple, incontrovertible fact. Yet the wrappings are still there, intact. All the evidence tells you that his body has not been removed by his enemies or by his friends. All the evidence tells you that the emptiness of the tomb is something not only mysterious, but something unspeakably wonderful. That is what the evidence tells you. Now, would you be remembering how Jesus told you he would rise from the dead? Would you be remembering the words Jesus spoke to you just three days Earlier, on the night before he died, 
a little while, and you will no longer see me. And again, a little while, and you will see me. Truly, truly, I say to you, that you will cry and lament darkness. But the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will be turned into joy. Now, whatever John may have been remembering at that moment, he doesn't tell us. But he does tell us in verse 8. So the other disciple, that's like John saying, that's me. The other disciple, who had first come to the tomb, then also entered. And brothers and sisters, here are the beautiful words. And he saw and believed. What did John believe? He believed, deep down, the only explanation for what he is seeing with his own eyes is the resurrection of Jesus. But therein lies the problem with his faith. The fundamental in your handout problem or inadequacy of his faith. What does it say? He saw and believed. He believes that a resurrection must have happened because of the evidence in front of him. And maybe because of the words he remembers Jesus speaking. But he cannot yet understand why it has happened. See, it's not enough to be excited that Jesus was dead and now he's alive. It's not enough to believe that that's fact, that it's historically fact it happened. We must understand why it happened. He saw and believed, and then John explains, he explains this. For as yet, they did not understand the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. John's contrast. John is not saying he saw and believed. He believed that Jesus' body was gone. You don't say that. You don't say, well, he believed Jesus' body was gone because he saw his body was gone. No, he believed Jesus was, the resurrection was the only way to account for this. But he saw and believed. He did not yet understand the scripture that Jesus must rise from the dead. The resurrection of Jesus is not just an astonishing historical event that happened 2,000 years ago in Palestine, in Judea. Though if we've seen anything at all this morning, we've seen that it is that. The resurrection just didn't happen out of the blue, in a void. In your handout, not only were there specific Old Testament scriptures pointing to the resurrection, the whole entire redemptive message of the Old Testament in your handout required a Messiah who would die and be buried and be raised up from the dead. So let's take this 
historically verifiable fact of the empty tomb and the resurrection of Jesus and understand that that fact was decreed by God, foretold by the prophets, foreshadowed by the Old Testament types, and even required by the very nature of the salvation that the Old Testament says you and I need. But yet John and Peter cannot see this yet. All they can see is the evidence before their eyes. And on that basis, and on that basis alone, John believed. If I could say it this way then, here's the simple reality, is that even apart from any saving faith, Let's say you've got no saving faith at all in God and Jesus. Yet, that person who has no saving faith, if he is confronted with the combined testimony of the Gospels, with multiple corroborating eyewitness accounts, he is foolish not to believe in the resurrection of Jesus as a historically demonstrable fact. That's, that's, that's a crazy thing to say, but it's true. No historical event that old right, has, has, has better eyewitness testimony than the resurrection of Jesus in terms of quality, in terms of the multiplicity of sources, of the corroborating accounts, and even of the different ways that it's approached. John saw and believed. And we too. Why do we believe? We believe on the basis of eyewitness testimony preserved for us in the Gospels. But of course, believing because of eyewitness testimony is not enough. In John's case, believing because of what he saw was not enough. Say he saw and believed. Well, that's good, but it's deficient. In John's case, this kind of believing combined with the fact that he still hasn't actually seen the risen Jesus alive, it's not going to lend itself to a confidence that goes out and announces the good news to others. And why is that? Because John still doesn't fully comprehend what the good news is. John could say, oh, good news, Jesus is alive, but John doesn't know what the good news is yet. He cannot comprehend or understand it. And so in verse 10, He tells us simply, so the disciples who had believed because they saw went away again to where they were staying. John believes because he's seen, not yet because he understands. We believe. We believe, and I hope and pray you can be included in that we. 
we believe, not simply because of the physical, historical evidence and the unimpeachable eyewitness testimony. We believe because our minds have been opened to understand the scripture that Jesus, what's the key word? That Jesus must rise from the dead. When you take the sheer historical facticity of the resurrection and you put that together with the must of the resurrection, there you have the bedrock foundation for your faith. A faith which Peter says, and through which Peter says, we are even now being protected by the power of God for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. It is this wonderful, glorious must that takes the sheer facticity of the resurrection and then reveals in that fact of history the joyful news of our salvation. Therefore, we are able to confess with joy, with the bedrock certainty of faith, we believe in the resurrection. If I could ask you then, right now, why do you believe in the resurrection? Why? Well, there's two reasons. Because of an empty tomb. And because that empty tomb had to be. And so, we know that it's through that faith God preserves us today. He sustains us today in obedience to him, in holiness and in love and a desire to live our lives for him every moment and every part of our lives and by which he will one day bring us to that salvation still to be revealed when the resurrected Jesus appears, takes us to himself. Dear Heavenly Father, oh Lord, we thank you for giving us the historical record of the historical fact of the empty tomb We thank you for the apparent contradictions. We thank you that John said it was dark and Mark said it was the sun was had risen. We thank you that that Matthew says the women went to tell the disciples and Mark says they didn't tell anyone. We thank you that John tells us about one woman. The others tell us about Two or three or four. We thank you for all the other differences because we see in all these differences testimony to the historicity, the facticity 
the historical reality of that empty tomb where the real body of our Lord was laid. And on that Sunday morning, when the women went, when John and Peter went, it was no longer there. Lord, we pray that not only do we thank you then for the historicity, for the fact of the empty tomb, but we thank you that you have opened our minds to understand that this must be. That it always had to be. And so we see in this the good news not just of a man who was dead but is now alive, but the good news that we who were dead now live in him. That we who will die will one day be raised with him. Thank you that our faith has such a foundation. Lord, if there are here those who have struggled with doubts, I pray that through this they would be encouraged with the reasonableness, the authenticity of their faith and of the historical record. If there are others who have perhaps not yet believed at all or submitted themselves to Jesus, the risen Jesus as their Lord and Savior, I pray that they would see that that this is your command and your invitation. And Lord, for us who have believed and have not yet perhaps been struggling with doubts, may we not only exult this morning in joy, but be all the more strengthened to live in faith and obedience. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.